0: It's midnight. PJ Frightful. Tonight's episode is another call-in show, and the calls have been pouring in. Let's go to our next caller. Hello, you're on the air.
1: PJ, how are you, my old friend?
0: Ah, crazy old Dr. Krazos. How's the mad scientist biz going? Performed any unspeakable crimes against nature recently?
1: Of course, PJ. That's what I do. In fact... That's why I'm calling.
0: Uh Uh-oh, that sounds ominous.
1: Fear not, my friend. I don't need you for the experiment. I merely called, wanting to brag about it.
0: And what is this experiment?
1: Tell me, have you ever wondered what would happen if you put a human brain in the body of a hyena?
0: No, that doesn't sound like something anyone would wonder about. Wait, did you do that to yourself?
1: Of course not. I used my lab assistant, Spencer.
0: Another one? Where do you keep getting these lab
1: assistants? Oh, various college campuses. Sometimes under bridges. That's not important. What's important is my work. I've been teaching the hyena with Spencer's brain to communicate. He was very good at crying and screaming, but I've taught him to count to six. I've even taught him how to say father.
0: That's incredible.
1: Would you like to hear it? Let me put him up to the phone. There now. Go on, Spencer. Speak.
2: Son of a...
0: We're going to take a break now. We'll be back with more of your calls after this.
3: Welcome back to another episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. I'm Ryan Daly, and I am excited because for the first time since way back on Episode 5, I get to talk about the Spectre again. Yes, picking up on the Spectre stories by Michael Fleischer and Jim Aparo from Adventure Comics. Joining me this time is Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks YouTube page and podcast, among others. Welcome, Nathaniel.
4: Thank you very much. Happy to be here.
3: Like every first-time guest on the show, you get the question, what is your experience with the horror genre, be it in comics, fiction, movies, whatever?
4: Well, I mean, I, as much as I love comics, I'm generally a, a movie guy first and foremost, so that's usually going to be my point of reference. But in terms of horror overall, my stance on it is kind of ancillary, and what I've, what I've found over time is there's a lot of aspects and uh, sort of the accoutrement of horror that I really like. The actual tropes of horror narratives tend to leave me very cold. And what I mean by that is, you know, I love supernatural aspects. I love monsters. But I tend to get very bored very quickly with your standard straight up ghost story, your standard straight up monster story, because they are incredibly formulaic. And that's not mean saying they're necessarily bad. I mean most quote unquote genre type stories tend to be very formulaic. I mean, God, you know, fantasy has been doing the, the, the wizard elves and dwarves thing to absolute death. But I think the reason it gets to me more with horror is that the vast majority of good horror stories depend on a certain element of surprise or unexpected catching you off guard with something. Mm. But most of them hew so strictly to formula that after you've experienced two or three stories in any specific horror subgenre, you've kind of had them all. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I remember, I think I was probably like third grade. The first time I ever heard, you know, that version of the classic, you know, maybe it's real ghost story. You know, somebody picks up a hitchhiker and they go to to drop her off, and then she's not in the back seat. And they knock on the door, and they get told, "Oh, she died in a car crash eight years ago." Was like, ooh, at that age, that blew my mind. But I I've realized over time, I've basically heard the ghost story, mm-hmm. and every ghost story is a variant of that thing that blew my mind the first time I heard it but very few of them ever evolved beyond that
3: well we're gonna be talking about a ghost story this time so. we
4: we are and and I and I do I do want to say I do enjoy horror and there are horror stories that I really like but they tend to be the ones that are more subversive the ones that are more straightforward the sort of what would be your standard your archetypal uh horror stories i like them the first time i experience that particular trope i'll like it and then whatever fits that trope ever you know forever after that will bore me because oftentimes they're usually just an excuse for the monster or the kills if it's a slasher or you know and and those things aren't viscerally satisfying enough for me inherently to to ride over formulaic storytelling and in in the case of horror specifically because like i said i think horror needs that aspect of surprising you right um, and
3: that i mean that does make total sense i mean if that's if you're looking at horror as uh, as a genre that is dependent on that surprise, well, by its nature, you only get that emotion, that experience one time. So, whether or not you're watching the same movie or reading the same comic, and, like, once that surprise, like, and obviously you, you consume enough media that you are connected to the tropes and you know what to look for. So you can spot those formulas a mile away. So, based on a setup and premise, you're going to recognize where the jump scare is coming. So, yeah, yeah. I, I can see I, that. So, yeah.
4: After a while, it's like everything kind of becomes like when you accidentally stumble into like a, a Law and Order marathon <laughs> or something. It's like, each of these are good, but boy, they're formulaic.
3: <laughs> I think you have the burden of knowledge. You are too smart or too familiar with the genre for your own good.
4: I've got to go with the latter because that first <laughs> one makes me sound a, a little too pompous, but I'll point out, you said it, not me. Okay.
3: All right, well, <laughs> let's move on. Uh, one of the reasons that I did ask you to appear on this show talking about this Spectre run is because of your Animation Junkie series on YouTube. Uh, and there is an animated short called DC Showcase the Spectre that was attached to one of the directed dvd movies a couple of years ago. That short was based on this run of Spectre stories, and actually one bit of that uh, movie comes from this very issue that we're going to be talking about. We will discuss the animated short later, but first we've got to cover the second entry in the Spectres run by Fleischer, Apero, and editor Joe Orlando. Adventure Comics 432 has a March-April 1974 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it hit newsstands on December 28th, 1973. The book was edited by Joe Orlando, as I mentioned. It sports a 20-cent price tag and a cover by Jim Aparo that shows the specter emerging as if from the mist of a swampy area while a man in a black ninja-like jumpsuit holds a smoking gun over a dead body. A text blurb above the masthead declares, The Specter. Specter returns. What do you think of this cover?
4: Um, depends on which half I'm looking at. Okay. So, if I, if I look at the right half with the specter like forming out of the mist, that is a cool image. That is a very cool image because you you, it, you immediately get that ghostly aspect of the character, and yet he's obviously incredibly firm and hard lines and tangible at the further you get up his body. And I just I like the design of the specter. I think that's a really cool look. So I really like that. The Ninja, (laughs) (laughs) on the other hand, I don't know what it is about that. I don't know. I I think part of it I'm going to chalk up to – the coloring because it's they tried to make it look heavy shadows but it just makes aside from his belt really and his goggles kind of it just makes him look really indistinct and because the rest of it is lit like it's daytime or you know maybe the start of sunset or whatever it he just looks weird Mm-hmm. It, it, there's no reason for him to be shadowed that much. And it's one of those things where I, I – because you, you lent me this a while ago, and it's been sitting on my bureau for, for some time. So I, I've seen this cover walking by it and re-looking at it over and over again quite a few times before I open it up. And I remember looking at it over and over again, and my eyes keep zeroing in on this guy and going, what the heck is going on there? <laughs> and I mean I, I, I think you're able to say a guy in a ninja outfit because you've read the interior. Because I looked at this cover for probably a month or two before actually cracking it open and figuring out that's what it was. I couldn't be certain that that's what, what, what I was looking at based on the cover alone. Mm-hmm. And, I, and again, I've got to chalk that up to the coloring. They just tried to do a shadowing effect that reads weird.
3: Yeah, and so a couple of points to address there. First, it was not my intention to go six months between the last, (laughs) between covering the first episode with the Spectre and the second appearance of the Spectre in the series. So yes, there's that. I gave you this, I gave you a copy of this issue a long time ago. Um, second, that is a very beat up copy. Um, and I'm actually right now, I'm looking at this in trade, but you're right. The coloring, that, that is the one, I mean, the, the ninja sort of there or whatever, the commando, he he looks like snake eyes. The costume that he is <laughs> wearing, bit. yeah. Is the one thing that sort of connects this to the story inside. But I kind of wish they had gone with something else. I wish a had just it like this would have been a better image if he had just run a, a guy in a business suit standing over another guy in a business suit. Or yeah. a punk. Well, like, I mean, you know, the, the guys wearing like their you know, whatever, their street clothes would have been fine.
4: Well, especially considering, and you know, I don't know if you were going to come back and point this out, but I'll just say it now. Especially considering that this image is not very representative of the story proper.
3: No, yeah, no, it's not. Considering it, we it, get, we actually get this image twice, busy. but it's yeah, yeah, right, right.
4: I mean, each of the elements is something that's a part of it, but well, except for the swamp setting, that actually never comes in. Right. So uh, since it's not representative of the story at all, yeah, I, I'm going to agree with that. I kind of wish they'd had anything other than this ninja jumpsuit going on. Mm-hmm
3: but that aside the image itself the atmosphere the mood of it seeing the specter rise out of a swamp like a mist with again like the the coloring I think it hurts the commander guy, but I just I love like the greenish hues and like the kind of murky, almost twilight kind of look of it. Um,
4: it's it's yeah. working. the 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 weird sort of coloring is working on the specter. It's just not working on the ninja. And the and the dead body looks good. We'll say I'll say that too. <laughs> it's
3: a good looking that's, corpse. That,
4: that's props to that corpse.
3: <laughs> All right, people, we are going to take a short break right now to advertise one of Nathaniel's shows, and after that, we will review The Anguish of the Spectre. Don't go away.
4: Who here likes comic books? Who likes superheroes? Who likes superhero comic books? From the 90s! That's what I thought. Hey there, I'm Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks. And though I've always loved superheroes, the only time I was buying monthly issues was during the much maligned 1990s. I've decided to go through my personal collection issue by issue and in my own little way, try to answer the question, were 90s comics really that bad? Chances are the answer will be yes, but I think these books deserve another chance and they're going to get it on 90s Comics Retrial, part of the Council of Geeks podcast, available on iTunes and at 90scomicsretrial.wordpress.com.
3: The Anguish of the Spectre is written by Michael Fleischer with finished art by Jim Aparo based on Russell Carley's breakdowns. Howard Simpson and I had some questions about that last time because Carley is credited with art continuity, and we had never seen that anywhere else. It was explained in the listener feedback that Russell Carley did rough breakdowns for the pages, and then Aparo penciled and inked over those, probably to save him time since Aparo was also drawing the brave and the bold every month at the same time he was doing this. The story begins with a splash title page very similar to the cover, except that there are three of the ninja jumpsuit guys, and they're wearing goggles. They actually look a lot like the 1982 version of Snake Eyes from G.I. Joe that I mentioned. In the world of mortal men, he is Jim Corrigan, hard-boiled police detective. But to the vermin of the underworld, he is the specter, awesome avenger of evil, an earthbound ghost who punishes evil with a fearsome vengeance from beyond the grave. Join us now for The Anguish of the Spectre. Late one night, three prowlers dressed in black commando jumpsuits and masks swing by the palatial estate of Adrian Sterling. They scale the high wall of his grounds with a grappling hook and rope, but their presence is noticed by two vicious-looking guard dogs. By the light of the full moon, one of the prowlers shoots the dogs with a silenced pistol. Once inside the grounds, one of the intruders leads the other two toward the swimming pool. Sterling's estate has additional security in the form of laser beam motion detectors. The intruders assemble poles from their equipment bags and vault over the lasers. At the pool, one of them takes an explosive package from out of their bag. He swims to the bottom of the pool, attaches the bomb to the drain, and sets the timer to explode at 8.30 the next morning. When the three intruders make their way back to the getaway van, the leader tells the others to go to work at their salon the next morning. Yes, salon, like everything is normal. She will go to her modeling appointment. Yes, she, the leader of the group, is a beautiful blonde woman named Vera. The next morning, Adrian Sterling goes for a swim in his pool. At 8.30, the bomb goes off, killing him. The explosion and thus the murder of Adrian Sterling is witnessed by his daughter. As the police investigate the scene, Detective Jim Corgan interviews the daughter who wears nothing but half a robe and a two-piece bathing suit. She tells Corrigan that lately her father had been having problems with his business partner, Maxwell Flood. Corgan drops some Raymond Chandler detective banter on her, but Miss Sterling asks him to call her Gwen. She also asks if he has a wife or a girlfriend and leans back in a way so as to pull the robe away from her mostly naked body. Corgan says he's not in a position to date anyone but he'll make sure her father's killer is punished. Later, Corgan goes to Sterling's office after everyone but Maxwell Flood has left for the day. First transforming into the ghost-like spirit of vengeance, the spectre then takes on the ghostly shade of Adrian Sterling. He floats through the door of Flood's office and, as Sterling, accuses the man of murder. Terrified, Flood denies the accusation. The spectre disappears, and no sooner does Flood call the hair salon to cry to Eric and Peter that the man he hired them to kill has come back as a ghost to haunt him. Eric tells Flood to come to the salon so they can make sense of this weird situation. The spectre follows Flood's speeding car. Eric tells Peter to watch the front door while he and Flood figure out this ghost thing in the back room. When Flood starts to ramble, Eric wraps the cord of an electric hairdryer around his neck and strangles him to death. In the aftermath, Eric glances up and sees the ghastly visage of the specter in one of the mirrors. The Avenger floats out of the mirror. Using his supernatural powers, he levitates a pair of shears, then causes them to grow enormous. Eric screams as the shares pin him to the wall, and then, with a snip, the twin blades come together, cutting him through the midsection. Peter sees what's left of Eric and bolts. As the specter knew he would, Peter goes directly to the final conspirator, Vera, who is too busy appearing in a fashion show at the moment to deal with him. Detective Corgan approaches Peter outside the fashion show, but at that exact time, the exact wrong time... Gwen Sterling drives up looking for him. Peter grabs Gwen by the hair and puts a gun to her head. Corgan has no mind to play hostage negotiator. He transforms into the awesome Spectre, a sight that terrifies both Peter and Gwen. He flies like smoke around Peter, who only has moments to complain about feeling hot and choking before his entire body is turned to sand that spills out onto the street. The Spectre turns back into Corgan to make sure Gwen is okay. Sobbing, she asks if what she saw was really real. Corgan tells her that he wants her as much as she wants him, but he can never be with her. He tells her to forget all about him as he disappears. Inside the fashion show, Vera models a hot new designer dress when she, too, feels the wrath of the Spectre. As the crowd watches, Vera begins to wrinkle and age more and more until her body collapses, dead apparently of old age. Back outside, a heartbroken Gwen Sterling walks away as a melancholy specter watches her go. The end for now. All right, Nathaniel, what did you think of the anguish of the specter?
4: Uh, I've got mixed feelings on this. <laughs> and I have a feeling that when, when it comes to the feedback section on this, you, my friend, are going to be going through deja vu with when you had me on Secret Origins <laughs> to talk about Shazam and have people just accuse me of not getting it. And I think the only reason I'm not going to get called a neophyte is because I've, I've nipped it <laughs> in the bud by tossing the word out there already. <laughs> but if, if I were to break it down on the simplest level mm-hmm. – this kind of exemplifies what I talked about in terms of what can bother me with horror tinge stories which is that when the ultimately at the end of the day while I can enjoy spectacle or you know the the flourishes of any given genre whether it's you know action in a more superhero thing or if it's you know horrific deaths in this and we'll get to those ultimately I'm a I'm a story guy first I care most about a a, about the narrative Mm -hmm. and it's hard for the other stuff to make up for it if I feel it's lacking so so in terms of the narrative, this is kind of what I said tends to bother me, which is that the story is just – it feels largely like an excuse to sick the specter on these three people and kill them each in a admittedly inventive fashion. The moments that I liked the best by a pretty wide margin – uh, is when Jim you know, takes on the ghostly form of the dead uh, of the victim mm-hmm. and confronts the guy. Now, what I liked about that is it was a nice bleed over between the supernatural elements and the fact that he's a detective because he's using his supernatural abilities to basically interrogate a witness in an incredibly unconventional way. Mm hmm. Because if he had just walked in there as a cop and gone, hey, I think you did this, the guy would go, no, I didn't. Well, okay, then. And then he'd leave. You know, he'd have his hunch, but he'd have to do, you know, the traditional cop stuff here because of what he can do. He can basically send the guy into an immediate panic and then just see what he does. And I like that. I like that. So I'm actually kind of more hooked in to the detective end of it with some supernatural elements, but unfortunately, it isn't much of a detective story after that. Once that gets set in motion, he just follows him to the first two killers, kills one of them, follows the next ones to the last killer, kills, kills, and there's no more there's no more investigating, there's no more mystery. Now I I do get that part of that is the page count. The story's only 13 pages. Yeah. And there isn't really room to stretch a mystery out, so I, I do get that. But just in terms of what's intriguing me and hooking me in much more, it's an aspect that gets yeah, maybe two pages tops out of the 13. And and then the rest is fine for what it is, but it kind of leaves me cold uh, in a lot of ways because it does just feel like it's an excuse for these you know, acts of vengeful death.
3: I get all that, and I actually, I agree with you. I know exactly where you're coming from, because this isn't my favorite story in the run, and I I was reading this, and I got to the end, and I was like, that story was too short for what it should have been. Uh, and it is frustrating, because later stories in this run... Fleischer and Apparel do get a few more pages. I think some of them get to be 17 or 18 pages. Uh, because I was just like, wow, this is really like, it's set up and then th- just watch three executions, basically. Um, mm-hmm. But so sparse on character develop. Like, we don't know why Flood wanted his partner dead, or I guess it, it was embezzling or something like that. But we don't know how he hired these three, what their connection is, why these hired hitmen, two of them work at, <laughs> the two guys work at a hair salon, the woman is a fashion model, why are these three particular doubling as assassins? It does
4: make you yeah. wonder, like, did, was there a reason that it was easy to convince them to go after this one guy? Do they just moonlight as hit people? I mean, I'd kind of be interested to see that story, if I'm honest. And I,
0: if
3: I had to guess, I would say that during the creation, the generation process of the story, either the writer, the editor, or the artist basically said, these are the type of crazy deaths that we're going to do. Okay, we need a woman to, like, gr- like grow really old and age, okay, age really fast, okay, it's it, there's a sort of symbolic retribution so make her a vain person make it all about her vanity so okay she's a model okay well what does the model have to why is she being punished for this so they have to make her a killer of some sort so it felt like they were checking off a few boxes in terms of who these Killers are in their day lives just so that they could have these appropriate deaths with like the giant scissors and everything. But it's, it, it like it goes so fast that you you kind of have to like if if I wasn't doing a podcast, I might not even realize when I stop and think. I was like, wait, wh- who are these people? Why are they killers? <laughs> wait, what what was this whole story about? The story moves too fast. That hopefully they don't want you to actually think about it, but. No, you're right. I, and I wish this story was longer. Um, and I don't say that about enough comics anymore. Usually I'm wishing for, for shorter. But yeah, I wish this one had a little bit more. And I do. I like the part that you talked about when he comes in uh, under the guise of the victim to kind of spook the – because you're right. If he had just come in as a plain detective, the guy is going to say, prove it, find evidence, and he's going to lawyer up. And that's the end of the story. But I it also kind of made me think that yet yeah, like if not for the very specific modes of death and their weird magical manifestations, this also could have been a Jean Jones the Martian Manhunter story. Because yeah. he ha- he has almost these entire skill sets. He can turn invisible, he can fly like ghosts, he can change his shape, so he could appear as a ghost to do this type of detective thing. Uh and t- could easily kill these people, but not necessarily in the in the same way. So yeah, I, and I liked the scene between Corgan and Gwen, even though it was again that was <laughs> like
4: that. Okay, I was gonna come back to that. It, it did what so. Is, it, she literally on a dime? Oh my God, my father's dead. Hey, do you have a girlfriend? <laughs> what the hell?
3: You know what? People <laughs> grieve in different ways. And it's not for us to judge.
4: (laughs) And you know what? Maybe I'd be more willing to let it go, except she comes back later on, and they try and and get this, oh, isn't it sad that they can't be together vibe? And, like, Mm -hmm. that does not ring true at all. So maybe if she had only been in the front end, I could have written it off as a, boy, she grieves weird. Mm -hmm. But they try and milk actual pathos out of it later on. And again, maybe that would have worked with a couple more pages to to actually make it seem like they had any kind of anything. But they don't. So it's just like, what the hell was that?
3: So the thing about that, and that is not excusing the way it's developed in this story. It's just sort of the reason. But Gwen comes back throughout this run. She's a running character a love interest
4: okay um, that that helps but um, it's still it's, it's still a for the confined to this story yeah that don't
3: work <laughs> but again i think it's because they're like okay we need to get them together we need to establish this instant attraction that they have that they want to be but the fact that he's not alive is going to be the obstacle in front of us but it moves it like happens so quickly like that it's and, I, like again, if there had been more pages, but also the first three pages. Again, talk about you know real estate. It's a 13-page story. The first page is just a, a title splash page that is pretty much a variation on the cover. It's the mm-hmm. same idea. We don't have the dead corpse on the ground. Instead, we've got all three of these people, but the specter kind of coming up out of the earth and everything. It still looks cool. It's a little bit more dynamic and action-oriented, but it's it's the same type of idea. Then pages two, three, and four are these guys breaking into the mansion and planting the bomb, and the bomb goes off and kills this guy that we never meet.
4: That like, – you know, I hadn't thought about it. for how few pages the story has to work with. That's an odd allocation how many pages that gets. Like I'll accept them shooting the guard dogs because, honestly, that made me want to see them get killed way more than the fact that they blew up a guy in his swimming pool. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they shot dogs. They must die horrible, horrible deaths.
3: <laughs> I, have a, but, I have a thing about that, too. So, yeah, but, on, but,
4: but the whole thing with, like, the laser fence, completely unnecessary. Yep. There's three panels, three sizable panels devoted to the planting of the bomb. That That could have been one. You know, it's... And then it's establishing, you know, alibis for these three people. I'm like, I did that matter. And, it, and it's not that it's bad. None of it's bad. But when you've only got 13 pages, this is too many pages devoted to the killing of a guy we don't know for reasons we'll never find out.
3: hmm. Yeah, going through some of the specifics of that, because one of the first things I noticed is that the guy who shoots the dogs, and I agree, boo on that, and he, and he, <laughs> he deserves to be cut in half by giant scissors, assuming that that one is Eric, and that one really could have been anybody. But he shoots them with a silenced pistol, a suppressed pistol, but the kind of pistol he's holding is a revolver those are almost impossible to attach a suppressor that will actually silence the gun because most of the sound is gas escaping from the chamber of bullets around it. It's not from the barrel. So, like, I actually... This is something that I did do the research on, and you can, but it takes a lot of work and, like, expert craft to find a suppressor or a silencer that will work for a revolver pistol. And... Assuming this is a hair salon, a hair stylist, or a fashion model, I again, I don't know what particular skill set they have, but I, I just I just saw that and I was like, yeah, I don't think that's the right gun for for this.
4: And this is going to be weird coming from me of all people, but I'm <laughs> going to call needless nitpick on that. <laughs> really? If, <laughs> here's why. Simply because of established tropes of silencers, because if you if you go on YouTube and you look up how much a silencer actually quote, quote unquote silences a very gun, very little, very little, almost not at all. So we just the popular culture, the you know the little yeah sound that's already so far off from reality. I'll forgive one being put on a gun that wouldn't take one because I know I already would have forgiven even on one that accepts one that it's silencing it way more than it would in reality.
3: Mm-hmm. So the other thing that bothered me about their plan, the sabotage, they attach an explosive with a timer to the bottom of the swimming pool set for 8.30. So they know enough about this guy that they know his morning routine is tomorrow morning he's going to be swimming in his pool at 8.30, and that's going to kill him. Mm-hmm. The thing is, they've killed dogs. They've killed his guard dogs on the premises. That act alone
4: could dramatically change his morning routine. Like, See, that that's a much more valid... Thing. The only thing that I I can think of is he obviously doesn't take care of these dogs himself. It's you know it's a Smithers taking care of Burns's hound situation, and then it's a question of would they find out and get word to him soon enough. I have a feeling he didn't wake up expecting those dogs to be at the foot of his bed.
3: Maybe not, but I still think like again like. I no, think no, no, no,
4: I'm, I'm a great. That's right. that's way more valid. This is me, like, stretching right. a little bit more to yeah. excuse it. But, yeah, that's – But, like, that's, anything. That's like, even if that.
3: he did have a Smithers, like, an assistant or whatever who found that and could have, like, warned him, like, that act alone could have changed his routine in a dozen ways that meant, oh, you know what? Maybe I'm not going to go swimming this morning because I have to find out who shot my dogs. And apparently got onto, like, the grounds or whatever. Okay, so,
4: well, you know what? If we're getting this nitpicky, here's the one – here's the thing for me during this sequence that I was like, eh, no. And it's the vault over the laser motion <laughs> detector things. Yeah. And it's not the vaulting over it, but it's like, okay, that's not how pole vaulting works in terms of the landing because they're implying through the thought balloons that he is – that he's somehow going to carry the pole with him. <laughs> over and then throw it back i'm like dude that pole a proper pole vault first of all you would leave it behind and you know what it would then do fall through the lasers exactly yeah um but they're implying he's somehow going to carry it up and over in a high arc with him and then throw it back no that's not how that works (laughs) so if we're getting this nitpicky about this thing, but again i think all of this emphasizes something you kind of said earlier which is the story is kind of banking on the idea of you not thinking too hard about this Mm -hmm. because that there between these nitpicks and the fact that you're right we don't really get much of an idea of why any of this happened in terms of you know the killing of this guy or why it was these people who were hired the story is is hoping that its momentum which it absolutely has will speed you through and over the holes
3: and i think that I think for the most part that does because the first time I read this when I Midnight the Podcasting Hour wasn't a flicker in my eye. The first time I read this I blew through it very quickly and I was like oh I love that story I loved how crazy the killings were I loved the pathos of oh this woman has fallen in love with him and he would like to be with her but he can't because of the you know whole you know dead thing <laughs> um, and, and and the you know tiny like little nitpicks about the art and everything I still love Aparo's art and how like the the whole vibe the the crazy kind of detective angle. It's, it is a story that does, it barrels through and just gets you to the, the good stuff. It's, it doesn't give you a lot. It doesn't spend a lot of time on characterization, or, you know, dramatic tension, the things that you want in the horror story. It doesn't yeah. <laughs> really give you what you want. It goes for the shock, suspense. We're really, you know, gonna challenge the comics code authority and then take this as far as we can with what kind of deaths we can give you. Yeah. I, I, so, I mean, you said you had mixed feelings about it. Yeah, obviously, there, there are certain things that you didn't like. What, what did you like? What were your favorite elements of the story?
4: Okay. Well, I talked about one, which is the, the, the mm-hmm. closest thing to a detective aspect in the thing. Um, and I like the deaths. You know, Even though I said you know gruesome deaths aren't viscerally satisfying enough on their own, while these are lacking the context that I would like to make them as satisfying as they could be, they are still pretty good. Both in terms of concept and visually, for me, the most horrifying one in terms of thinking about it uh, is the shears, mm-hmm. the giant shears. There's just something about that image of him, you know, struggling to keep them from closing on him, and then you know you see you see the you know the half that you would have your fingers in. You see those close, and you've got the scream. Right, and then you know you see the upper half of the body, and that that. That's like the death look from the ring on his face. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. That is a horrified look. Now, even though I think that's the most horrifying, my favorite death, um, and I don't even know why. It's the guy being blown out of the, the swimming pool. <laughs> Something about the way the body's being flung out of that pool. <laughs> I don't know. It makes me smile. I'm looking at it right now. I'm like, I just like that. I don't know why. I really like that.
3: That is good. Yeah, it is. It is. The – who is was Vera her death her being aged so quickly. I mean, we've seen Indiana Jones in the last crusade, so
4: yeah. It is it I mean, it's it's well rendered as right, far as right. the art yeah, goes. It is. And and if you're going for someone who's you know, got this whole vanity thing going on. It's an appropriately ironic death, mm-hmm. so it fits. But yeah, it's it it's maybe not as original, but it's it's well realized. Right. the The one that I think is the most iffy is the turning to sand because that's kind of like what? Yeah, um, I forgive that one. Not having the same ironic edge to it though because it kind of happens on the fly and that wasn't necessarily when the specter was planning to take him out he kind of had to act quickly right so yeah, there's, a, yeah, there's an go. innocent
3: bystander in danger so he's got to take care of that yeah yeah actually um, you, you said your favorite death might be the uh the bomb going off in the swimming pool yeah my, my favorite death might be when eric kills flood like that, that, top panel on page nine. Like the look on his face with the bug eyes and him screaming as he's wrapping the cord of the hairdryer around him.
4: Yeah, yeah. And uh, and Eric, that's uh, that is not a nice guy. And <laughs> and and oddly, uh, oddly muscular for a for a hairdresser. You could, yeah, And it, there's a lot of tension in that image. There's a lot of tension in Flood's face, and there's a lot of tension in Eric's arms pulling that cord tight. Mm-hmm. It's that's yeah. That's that's a solid one.
3: You've got my uh, my copy of the floppy issue. How is Peter colored? Because in the trade paperback that I'm looking at, he's got a distinct red hue like he's uh probably a Latin American or something like that. Nope. Okay. Is he just nope. white Caucasian?
4: No, he's Caucasian. He's the, he's the same he's the same color as Eric.
3: Okay. Yeah, he's colored distinctly different in the trade
4: paperback. That like, is odd. Like the only thing I can think of is maybe they're trying to make them look more distinct from each other, but except Peter's got the, the porn stash, and, <laughs> yeah. and Eric was clean-shaven. So we've got a clear distinction between them already. So that's weird. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. I don't know why they, they colored that differently, but it's – yeah. And it's consistent. It's not like a one-time thing. There is huh. one there is one coloring inconsistency in the page when Corrigan – it's on page six. When Corrigan is still talking to Gwen, the top panel uh, – he's actually colored blonde instead of his usual ginger –
4: um he's actually that that sort of more blonde coloring he's got that throughout the floppy oh yeah he's got he's got kind of a sandy orangey hair with a white streak in yeah it.
3: The, yeah the white streak is consistent that's part of his look, but yeah it's supposed to be a fairly consistent like orangish red so
4: well i I mean it could just be because the um the issue's old and faded it is orangish but it's an orange that my mind reads more as a sandy blonde than an orangey red, so that could be just the limitations of the coloring, or it could be faded because it's old. Uh, the I think the only time it actually looks red is his one panel uh, in the upper left of page 12. That's the only time in the floppy that it looks actually red-ish. Pretty much every other time, yeah, it reads closer to blonde.
3: Yeah. So... I like the story. I like all the stories in this. Uh, this is not the best story from this run, but I think its problems are... Maybe the story was too big. It was too ambitious for the page count. I mean, even if... I don't I don't know that we needed as many killers as we did. I mean, it feels like there are, almost, there are too many characters. They're introducing a love story. They're killing somebody off, and there are four conspirators in the dead that all have to meet kind of their own little demises. And it's just... It's too crowded. Things move to... We don't get... Uh, very good characterization uh, i mean we we just were expected because these people are killers we they, they deserve what they get but it's still the i love the art i love kind of just how how quickly this feels and just the kind of the raw energy of it that i'm willing to forget that oh man if they could have just had five more pages on this thing
4: <laughs> on a first read it plays pretty well, partly because it does read so quick. It does not hold up to scrutiny mm-hmm. at all. And the thing is, reading this as a thing unto itself, coming away from it, I kind of felt like I don't think I ever need to read another Spectre story in because I feel like it would just be this every time. Like, what's the excuse for him to kill people? Now, me thinking, oh, OK, maybe kind of was only ticked off by you going, oh, she becomes a recurring love interest. And then I go, oh, they do actually start to build stuff. And it's not just – Here's the people he's going to kill this story. Mm-hmm. If I were to make a, a, a comparison to movies, this feels like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. <laughs> Here comes Freddy again, here's the fodder. He kills them in different ways, come back next time to see how he does it. You know, that yeah. it it has that it has like that here's another installment of the same stuff. Um, so it's not and, – and there's nothing in the story in and of itself that would make me go, I want to read the next one because I actually kind of finished this assuming none of this matters in terms of a continuing story. You telling me otherwise – does actually make me more curious, but that's on the strength of hearing stuff that is outside the the pages of this story itself.
3: And because it'll probably be about six months before I get to this series again, so nobody's going to remember. But yeah, the, the very next story, Gwen is central because she goes to a mystic-type person to say... I'm dating a ghost or I've fallen in love with a ghost and he's like, "Uh, okay, she's crazy because he's a a charlatan. It's actually (laughs) – it's one of the Spectre's very first stories in the Golden Age, like his third appearance, maybe his second appearance because I know it it was repeated in the Secret Origin story, uh, is a swami, like a fake swami who's trying to bilk a woman out of her money. And the specter ends up ma- like punishing, turning him into glass. So it's very much a playoff of that because it's it's a Swami character that she goes to uh, for help, and he. Well, I, I won't spoil it because I'll, I'll review that episode someday. Um, but yeah, she she does come back, and she's kind of pivotal and their relationship. is uh, interesting. Uh, we'll just say so. Yeah, it's <laughs> well,
4: you know, when, when you're in love with a dead man, you're uh, you're you're in for something uh, a little outside the box.
3: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> It's a problematic story when you're really looking at it, scrutinizing it for a podcast. I still think it's a whole lot of fun. For like digestible, just you know, trash fiction. It's it's a it's a fun little short story. But again, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, one of the reasons I wanted you to be one of my guests on these Spectre stories is because of your love of animation. And there was to my mind the the short showcased the Spectre is one of the best things DC Animation has ever produced. Uh, up there with the best episodes of Batman the Animated Series and Justice League Unlimited. Uh, and it borrows from different stories from this run. The one that we really get in the in the short is the, it opens up with a guy swimming, and he's, or he's diving off his uh, board, and there's a bomb planted in his pool, and it explodes and kills him. Spectre goes to see the grieving daughter uh, and then tracks down the other killers. He kills one of the guys... Uh, well, it
4: it, al- it also repeats the um, appearing to one of the killers as the ghost of the dead guy, yeah, yeah, bit as well. So th- th- there's a couple elements borrowed bar- yeah. from this.
3: Uh, and the killer who he appeared – who was driving away, who was in his car when the Spectre killed him, that was one of the deaths that we saw in Adventure 431 that we covered last time. But the the sort of the big twist is the woman, the grieving daughter, so-called grieving daughter at the end is revealed not to be a potential love interest even though she does kind of come on to him or, or – play to his affections but it's actually she is one of the conspirators who killed her dad to get money or something so what did you think of the short of the animated short
4: well um here's the thing i had seen it a while back Mm -hmm. because i as you mentioned, i i've even though they have gotten incredibly inconsistent and in some cases, very, very bad. Mm-hmm. In recent years, I am kind of a completist in terms of being sure to see all of the DC animated stuff. So I, I forget what uh, film it was attached to, but I did, I did see this short a couple of years ago. At this point,
3: it was—I think it was Crisis on Two Earths or Under the Red Hood. I want to say it was one of those two.
4: I think it was Crisis. I think it was Crisis okay. on Two Earths, which I actually own because that's one of the better ones. Mm-hmm. But, <clears throat> but, anyways, um. It didn't leave a a huge impression on me at the time. Now, I rewatched it after – I asked you to. Well, after you asked me to and after reading this. And honestly, it has upped my appreciation for it largely by comparison because (laughs) there's a lot of things that that short does right that this story failed to do. And having a more immediate comparison made me appreciate the short a lot more than I did on first viewing. So a couple of specific things. First of all, just in general, we get a much stronger detective angle on it Not in, in two respects. The first is the hard-boiled detective narration. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think just plays better if you can hear the voice. Yeah. And, and it's a very well-cast voice. I think that kind of overwrought. Uh, this city, yeah, there's always something going on. I think that just plays better if you can hear it versus just reading it on the page. I just feel that in general, yeah, so that's part of it. um, so just the f- it just feels more detective, which, as I mentioned is is sort of the angle that I like more about this setup in the first place, mm-hmm. is the idea of the detective with supernatural elements as opposed to. You know, he's only a detective so that he has an excuse to stumble across a murder every story so he can kill people, (laughs) which is what it feels like more in the in the issue that we read. So that's the first thing. But then the other sort of mystery aspect is there is, in fact, a surprise person who is involved in the killing who you didn't think. Now, it's not that much of a mystery. The short's only like 15 minutes and there's a small cast of characters. So it's not hard to guess. It's not like a real gotcha. But points for trying. Mm hmm. Points for actually putting in some kind of mystery. And she works better in terms of that instant affection because they establish she and Corrigan have known each other for a while. So she plays off the idea that they already know each other and maybe he already has those kind of feelings for her, which makes that whole end of it play much better. And she just becomes a femme fatale character.
3: And so, I think even if she – even if they didn't know each other, even if they didn't have that shared past, I think her coming on to him so strongly – As a misdirection, as a way of, you know, throwing him off, or at least an attempt, as bald-faced as it might be. I think that works a little bit better than a, a genuine attraction at a very inappropriate time.
4: Yeah, that, and that's the thing. It puts that little twist on it that that makes it work. Because when you play it straight, which is what the issue did, it's just weird. Mm-hmm. So if you can if you can make it slightly off kilter, which it, which in the short it is because she's part of the whole plot, it plays much better. And the other thing is is that the short is able. Um, and, and I think this is true in general. I think it's one of the things that is tough for horror comics, uh, especially for older ones, because of um, largely because of the coloring, because they're just they're they don't get to be dark and atmospheric very much because, you know, the coloring almost kind of demands that they're kind of bright and colorful and trying to tell horror stories, even with heavy inks and shadows. it You know, in these older era books, it it never quite gets the same level as atmosphere as say the first one of those guys that he goes after who's uh who's a special effects guy because it was a movie mogul who was mm-hmm. killed and he goes in and the the different creatures that this special effects guys made start moving around and like there's a there's a ventriloquist dummy in the head just spazzes out for a bit before it falls you know That just builds a much more frightening atmosphere that sells the horror, not as the look at us, kill this guy, but as the let's feel the dread, which just sells that better for me than just how messed up is the kill. Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways it's not necessarily stuff that can't be done in comics. And there may be Spectre stories in the comics that do it as well as that short did it. But I certainly feel like that short knew how to take advantage of what it could do in animation versus what was done on the page to ramp up the aspects – that make the specter unique. The the detective aspect, getting that feeling of legitimate tension and dread in some of those in some of those kill scenes, getting a certain visceral satisfaction in that last kill, especially because mm-hmm. he basic he basically paper cuts her to death with a flurry of money. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's just yes, that's awesome. So I am glad that you had that you asked me to revisit that because I had. I think the thing was I didn't really stop and examine that short the first time I watched it. And it and I just kind of breezed through it. And in a way that hurt my um appreciation of it, Ka- almost in the opposite of this book cuz in this with this story in the in the issue, you breeze through it it comes off best mm-hmm. because of the plot holes in it. Whereas I think the short managed a bit more depth to it that I kind of didn't appreciate cuz I only breezed through it and didn't think too much about it.
3: Yeah, yeah. I did like the twist that in terms of keeping it a short self-contained story, again, like the comic changes it makes Gwen a legit love interest because she is going to be a recurring character. Had that not been the case, I think it would have been perfect. It would have been smart to do what the short does and make her the femme fatale surprise villain at the end. And she gets her, like, just basically swap her for the Vera part, and that works a lot better, and you get rid of an excess character that doesn't add anything. So I I did like that change, and I thought that worked. Um, also, just in terms of the the animation quality, like, the way that they saturated it and, like, made it look like a 70s grindhouse, you know, <laughs> horror feature or whatever, they didn't just do that in the typical DC house style. Like, they really... Went uh, you know above and beyond with the production quality of that animation. Like I really I loved the Spectre short and the Jonah Hex short. That was uh, I think the one right before that.
4: Um, yeah, those those were those were both very good. And it's you mentioned the Grindhouse thing. Rewatching that Spectre short. I don't know if it's actually a period piece set in, like, the 70s, but it certainly could pass for one. Yeah. In in terms of the styling of the clothes and the cars and –
3: There's, like, a bit of a – almost borderline porno music at the beginning.
4: (laughs) A little bit. A little bit, which, I mean, for – and again, it may not literally be a uh, a period piece, but the feel of the thing is kind Mm. of 70s L.A. Yeah. That kind of music, it, it puts you in that headspace.
3: Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, thank you for giving it a second chance uh, because it sounds like you liked it a lot better the second – or you liked it better the second time.
4: I um, did. I did. Yeah. I, liked it, I liked it significantly better. I didn't dislike it the first time. It just it didn't, it didn't leave re- much of yeah. an Im- – yeah, it didn't leave much impact on me the first time I watched it.
3: Yeah. All right, well, well, thank you for watching again. Thank you for taking part in reading this issue of Adventure Comics with me. Thanks for being part of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. Um hopefully you're not, you know, deluged by <laughs> raw, raw, Why do you hate everything I love comments because I
4: will because have to Because that's stuff. my job. That's why I'm here <laughs> to piss you all off. Dance, puppets,
3: dance. <laughs> I, I wasn't even thinking, like, I, I didn't even occur to me that I was giving you one of the weaker stories in the collection. I was like, Yeah, he'll be fine. He, these are good stories. He's not going to find anything to hate on this one. But, not, you know. You uh, fool. I'm, I know, but I'm also. You, you
4: poor fool. I'm
3: glad I didn't give you, like, the best of the best, like, the best story out of this bunch. Because you still would have come up with the same criticisms, and I would have just. Said,
4: yeah, <laughs> no, I probably would have. And then, then we both would be in real trouble. <laughs> All
3: right. All right. Well, Nathaniel, assuming there are still people after this who want to hear more from you, where can they do that in the podcasting or video casting realm? What are you? What projects do you want to plug?
4: Okay, I'll try and burn through this quickly. Uh, if you look for Council of Geeks, you will find the vast majority of my stuff. The most frequently updated is YouTube. There is an average of three new videos every week on various things, and you know I will rant about what it, whatever's going on with geek movies or TV at the time. I've been doing uh, reviews of the new Doctor Who. There's also the Council of Geeks podcast feed, which is home to Roundtable Discussions, which Ryan sometimes partakes in, 90s Comics Retrial, and the new Go Home Hollywood, You're Drunk. And I am also one half of the Punch Like a Girl podcast which is a separate feed and that is where uh, my librarian friend Liz and I go through uh, graphic novels and trade collections with female protagonists.
3: Those are all good shows I've I'm halfway through the latest Punch Like a Girl uh, where you guys are talking about Ms Marvel current at the time that we're recording this that's the most recent one who knows when this will actually be out but uh
4: yeah great stuff. Well you 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 have a mo- that's a monthly show so you you've got don't, You've got basically three weeks. Don't put the to, pressure <laughs> to, get, to get this out, we, and it'll still be the current episode.
3: <laughs> I'm cutting all of this out because I who knows when that'll happen. But uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you for starting "Go Home Hollywood." You're drunk because that's a that's a great new addition. I know you'd been talking about that for a while, and glad that you finally pulled the trigger because that's really fun.
4: I'm, I'm enjoying it because I, I there's all sorts of stuff that I know that goes on, but none of it warrants like a 10 minute rant video, <laughs> which you know I do on the bigger stuff like new trailers or sony or warner brothers being stupid or what have you but so much little stuff goes on it's nice to just be able to unload that with uh with my friend john who's the who's the other half of that podcast and just unload that from my brain and force it onto all of yours
3: and we're already having those conversations every day on facebook messenger so you're just yeah pretty much putting it out there for the for the rest of the the masses so All right, well, one more time. Thank you very much for being on this episode, Nathaniel.
4: Thank you for having me.
3: All right, folks, do not go away because I'm going to play another promo for another of Nathaniel's shows. And after that, I will get to the listener feedback. Are we going way back to last December? I don't know. (laughs) We'll see.
4: Hey there. My name's Nathaniel, and I'm here to tell you about an exciting new podcast.
0: What are you doing?
4: Oh, hey, Liz. I'm just recording the the podcast promo.
0: You're recording the promo for the Punch Like a Girl podcast? Yeah. You.
4: Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the hosts. I have more podcast experience. What?
0: You're going to sit there and mansplain to people about a podcast focusing on graphic novels and trade collections with female protagonists?
4: Um, oh. Yeah. Can I at least tell them how it's available on iTunes and Stitcher and at punchlikeagirlpod.wordpress.com? No. Shoot. All right, well, hang on. I'll delete this. We'll try again.
0: That's not delete. That's the button for publish.
3: As mentioned earlier, the last time we covered the Spectre on this podcast was back in December. While it's taken me seven months to get to the listener feedback from that show, my guest that episode, Howard Simpson, was very good about responding to everyone's comments on the website. So... Many thanks to Howard for being so much more punctual than I am, and also another round of thanks to him for reprising his role as Dr. Krazos at the beginning of this episode. I think every comment the website received for that episode praised Howard, in particular his stylized synopsis for the story. And since he thanked everyone individually, I'll do it collectively and agree with everyone who said that Howard's rat-a-tat-tat recap was the highlight of the show. Maybe the highlight of the Fire & Water podcast network. As for the other comments we received, Joe X explained how this series led to one of the biggest controversies in the comic book industry in the 1980s. In the Comics Journal 53, Harlan Ellison used terms like crazy, certifiable, twisted, derangeo, and lunatic to describe Fleischer and his work. Fleischer sued Ellison, Fantagraphics, and publisher Gary Groff for $2 million for libel. There was a long-involved trial that caused a serious falling out between Ellison and Groff and was a regular topic in both the Comics Journal and Comic Buyer's Guide letter columns in those pre-internet days. It's a giant rabbit hole of 80s and 90s comic and sci-fi industry politics that no one came out looking good in. I, I don't know. I find it very hard to believe that Harlan Ellison would be involved in something controversial like that. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I wonder what the Underworld talk was about the Specter's activities. I can imagine a brave and the bold with Batman going to New York to investigate why so many cowardly and superstitious criminals are getting out of the game. He'd be so jealous. That would be a fun story, Martin. The question is, would Batman accept the Spectre's method of justice, given that he is a deputized agent of the law? Nah, I still doubt it. Rob Kelly from the upcoming Superman movie Minute and other shows on this network said, I used to own these Spectre stories in the original issues, and then bought the trade paperback. Reading the trade, I felt like the comics lost a little something on nice, clean, high-quality paper. They screamed out to be on cruddy newsprint, and that's how I've read them ever since. Yeah, as much as I love the convenience of a trade paperback and the aesthetic quality of a hearty omnibus or hardcover collection, there is something about reading old genre fiction on faded newsprint that feels like a more authentic, immersive reading experience. Can't deny it. Edo Bosnar corrected Howard and I on the role that Russell Carley played on the series, and I think I still got that wrong when I was describing it to Nathaniel this episode. But Edo said... I don't think it's correct to say that Carly did the layouts, if by that you mean Aparo drew over or used as reference the layouts drawn by Carly. According to the introduction, in the excellent Wrath of the Spectre trade you mentioned, Fleischer and Carly worked out the plot, which Carly then broke down into panels, on which basis Fleischer wrote the script, which was then sent to Aparo, who did all of the actual art and lettering. That's why they had trouble finding a way to credit what Carly was doing. Thank you, Edo. Thank you for clearing that up. I needed that info. And that, if that sounded sarcastic, it wasn't meant to be. I meant that seriously. Uh, Chris Franklin, the other host of Superman Movie Minute, said, I really need to track down that Wrath of the Spectre trade. My ex-brother-in-law had these comics, and I read them about 25 years ago, but most of the details are lost to time. But the visceral punch of them is still there. Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast and the Spoken Word album, They Used to Call Me Flanger, said, A great guest and a great episode talking about a great comic. Plus, the PJ Frightful shtick was most amusing. Thank you very much. Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine podcast network said, The Spectre is my second most anticipated feature of Midnight After Swamp Thing. If for no other reason than it forces me to finally read the copies of the Wrath of the Spectre Baxter format reprint series that I've had mothballed for years now. Frank, I am so so sorry. Uh, he goes on to say, where I read the earliest ween rights in swanthing as a kid and have nostalgia fueling my interest there, I know the Fleischer Aparo specter mostly through reputation rather than direct contact. My Michael Fleischer exposure has been through incarnations of Jonah Hex and failed license titles, but I like his stuff well enough and want to see if he earned those backhanded compliments from Ellison and Groth. Jim Aparo is a lifetime favorite, and his work on this first story is pretty good, but there's a rougher line here that I'm not used to. Curious to see if that was a choice or just a phase in his development while transitioning from Charlton to DC. I don't know. I mean, like I said earlier in the episode, Aparo was doing Brave and the Bold at the same time he was doing the Spectre story. Well, at least they were being published right around the same time, so maybe it was a choice to be a little bit rougher with his work here? I don't know. Uh, And Frank says, I can't remember if I've complimented the music used on this show, so just in case, please send my highest regards to Neil Daly. The synth horror 80s sound is perfect for my taste. Glad you like it, Frank. Glad everybody seems to have liked it so far. Uh, The Irredeemable Shag from Justice League International Bwahaha podcast, among others, said, Just finished listening and loved this episode. The Spectre is probably my favorite horror character from DC, and my love comes from these adventure comics issues. I really don't recall how I discovered them initially, but once I did, they were devoured as quickly as possible. MTC said, I'm glad I can look at the gorgeous Aparo art in the gallery post, and that can hold me over until I track these down. Well, I hope you've found some of them since then, back in December. Uh, Scott X said, Ryan mentioned the size-changing power of the Spectre as just sort of always being there, even though it doesn't seem to have been directly expressed as part of his power set. That hit home with me. The first time I ever saw the Spectre in a story was in the DC special issue that featured the origin of the Justice Society of America. Since then, one of the images of the Spectre that has always stuck with me is that of a giant Spectre standing in the English Channel, wiping out an entire German invasion fleet. By the way, he had the nice button collar in that issue, too. That was a good issue and a good way to remember the character, Scott. Uh, Bradley Null said, Great show, lots of fun. And finally, Siskoid contributed a new tagline to the Spectre in classic 70s fashion. He's a complicated ghost, and no one understands him but his horror hosts. Uh, Love it, love it, love it. Uh, Yeah, that's going to be it for this episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. I feel like a lot of these episodes end with me outlining some plan for where the show is going, and they almost never come to fruition, so... I'm not even going to waste time pretending like I know what's next for this show. Uh, see, I don't even have the time to waste. Well, until the next show, he's a complicated ghost, but no one understands him but his horror host.
0: Spectre. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter, at RyanDaily01, or send him an email at r.dailypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.